Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David Crabb. And you bend over on the street and in front of a bus full of people looking at you, you pick something out of their butt when they're pooping because it's stuck, you know? That and more. But before that, I want to talk about one of my new favorite online stores, Thrive Market. I've had such a great personal experience getting my food, kitchen supplies, bathroom products, you know, your grocery shopping at thrivemarket.com. And the selection is the cream of the crop, the most organic, non-toxic, BPA-free, non-GMO, no artificial ingredients sorts of products at 25 to 50% off shipped right to your door. And you could do price comparisons right there on the site to see the retail price compared to what Thrive Market is charging. Compare it to Whole Foods or any place you go out to get your groceries. They cut out the middleman so they can pass the savings on to their members. The box came so quickly, I got myself some Laura bars, some grain-free cat food for donkey. I got some soups and soaps. I'm all stocked up in the bathroom now. You can do specific searches on their site. Like if you're vegan or gluten-free, you can curate to see only the products that fit your needs. So you'll get $60 of free organic grocery credits plus free shipping and a 30-day trial membership if you go to thrivemarket.com slash risk. And don't forget their prices are already 25 to 50% below retail. You're going to be amazed at the quality and selection at thrivemarket.com slash risk for $60 off and free shipping and a 30-day trial membership at thrivemarket.com slash risk. Also, these days you can get practically everything you want on demand, like this podcast. You can listen whenever you want when it's convenient. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages? You can get your postage on demand with stamps.com. With stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer. Then the mail carrier picks it up. Just click, print, mail, you're done. Couldn't be easier. We've used stamps.com at risk and the Story Studio for probably seven years now, and we've always loved it. And right now, you can use Risk for this special offer. It includes up to $55 free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Risk. That's stamps.com. Enter Risk. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is bob dylan behind me now and we're calling this week's episode tough love this is a beautiful beautiful episode this is a good one folks as i'm sitting here at my desk (laughs) i've got my little guy (laughs) donkey looking up at me from his cat bed. He wants me to pet him right now. Donkey wants to be by me wherever I am in the apartment, so whenever I work on the podcast, I I have to put the cat bed right here at the foot of it. 
it's just a reminder, and this whole episode is just a reminder of how very, very, very important it is to show love to the people you love. This is a very precious time. I have been very emotional this past weekend because, you know, our, our nation has been in something like crisis for a couple of years now, but this weekend has been especially precious and precarious because, as you know, due to this White House administration's new policy, uh, children are being ripped from their families, from their parents, and put in cages down by the border. A couple thousand of them so far. I've had people be very upset about me talking about politics on the show before, but uh, there are times when it's just, as a human being, I feel like I, I'm not going to apologize. I am going to encourage you to call your representatives to look for marches or any other sort of activism you can do for the sake of those children and their parents. Those are lives very, very, very damaged that our state has, uh, that we have done, it's on us. We, the voters, let the people who are in power get in power and they are destroying lives very unnecessarily. So that's what I'll say about that. Let's do something. There's two phenomenal acts, bills being proposed in Congress right now. The Help Separated Children Bill, number 2937, and the Keep Families Together Bill, number 3036. So good stuff to get behind. Okay, now, like I said, this episode is extremely <laughs> emotional. There are a lot of laughs, a lot of laughs. And a lot of tears on this episode. We're going to start with laughs, mostly. We're going to start with a really fun story that was told by Jalenta Greenberg, one of our favorites. This episode is two of our favorite storytellers who have been on the show several times. Jalenta is the co-host of the wonderful podcast, By the Book, that's on the Panoply Network. You know, Jalenta and her co-host, they try out some self-help regimen from a book and experiment, see how it goes. Really fun show. She is on Twitter, at Jalenta G. And here she is now at the Risk Live show at Caveat in New York City with a story we call The Producers. We can all agree, I think, that tweens are garbage. Like, they're garbage people. Like, think of yourself at 11 and go like, was I kind of a piece of trash? I was. I was definitely. When I was 11, I, like, this is what I was about. I was really into my pet rats. I was really into researching facts about orca whales, and I... I was like very, very passionate about my, my uh, new business, which was a hemp jewelry making company. Like I sucked. Like I, I would never hang out with 11 year old me. 
which also happened to 11-year-old me. I, I, I didn't have many friends. Um, I, I was an only child. I didn't play sports. And when you're at that age, a tween, you still kind of only have kid friends, you know, the ones that are like on the soccer team with you or in your chess club or your mom's workout together, you know? Like, they aren't like friends you pick. They're just situational kid friends. And I didn't even have any of those. So I was just like thirsty as fuck for friendship. <laughs> So I came up with a plan as a tween, and it was great. I decided I was gonna volunteer to write the class play, and whoever else volunteered with me was gonna be my BFF because we clearly shared a love of the theater. <laughs> so the day arrives in fifth grade, uh, a few months into the school year, and our teacher says it's time to start working on the play. And before she can even like say the word play, I'm the first one with my hand up, like it's gonna happen. I'm gonna be the first to be called on. She calls on me and everyone starts looking around who else is raising their hand. I scan the room, there's only one person with their hand up and it is this girl named Liz. And before I can do one of those like, oh no, I was just yawning. Like, no, I didn't mean to have my hand up. Our teacher's like, Jolanta and Liz, congrats, our playwrights, bye, go get to work. So I'm stuck. Now, I don't, I don't love Liz. I don't get Liz. Liz is half wasp and half like Chinese American royalty. Her, her mom was the first Asian American rose queen in Oregon, which is a huge fucking deal. <laughs> um, like they're just this old, like famous family where I'm from. And she uh, jumped ponies, but she also played hockey on a boys hockey team. Like she made no sense to me whatsoever. And she was like very physically rough, which clearly like, you know, based on what I was into, rats and like researching whales, like I wasn't very physical. Did not like her. And I'm sure she probably didn't like me. I bet I came off as, you know, your average loner, shut-in, only child. <laughs> it was a mystery. But we had a job to do and we took it seriously. So every day for a few weeks when we were given our free time, Liz and I would huddle at the back of the classroom on the class computer. We had one computer because this was the 90s and it was like, you know, the size of this room. Uh, and we cranked out a play. Our, our interactions were awkward and stilted, but when the play went up, there was no denying the fact that we were a fucking amazing writing duo. Our play about an absent-minded teacher on the Mayflower in charge of a group of unruly children while they sailed to America was the comedic hit of the school year. Thank you. Uh, after the play closed, I was on the playground one day and Liz came up to me out of nowhere. And I, you know, Liz and I parted ways. Our job was done. We didn't, you know, we didn't like the same things. We were two weirdos, but very different kind of weirdos. Uh, but she comes up to me and she goes, I have an idea. And she has this grin and these like insane wide eyes that I know from writing with her means she will not take no for an answer and I'm gonna do what she says. She says, we have to write a movie. And I was like, shit, this bitch is smart. <laughs> yes, yes. Our play was such a success, like we would be doing the world a disservice if we did not immediately write a movie. She was right. So 
We decided since it was a big task, we would start working on our film the first day of summer vacation. First day comes, we set up an office in her lower bunk. We, we write, we storyboard, we make shot lists, we make you know tripods out of chairs. We crush it and we crank out a film called The Schwimmer Warlock Project. <laughs> now, I don't know if you can tell, but Liz and I were very original and very creative, uh, and we decided to make a movie that was just the combination of the number one television show at the time and the number one movie at the time. Uh, so we used David Schwimmer, his name, an actor from Friends, and um, just made a warlock project for him. So we had not seen the Blair Witch Project because we were 11 and that shit was scary. <laughs> So our movie ended up just being a shot-for-shot -shot recreation of the trailer for the Blair Witch Project. But any reference to a witch was swapped out with a reference to David Schwimmer. So when I say it out loud, like it sounds very stupid, but in the moment it was genius. So we spent weeks running around my backyard, which was small but forested because we were in Oregon and had a creek. Like, it looked like it could have been a haunted forest. And we'd run around and we would find stick dolls hanging from the trees, but those stick dolls had little printed out pictures of David Schwimmer's face <laughs> taped onto them. <laughs> or one night we stayed up really late to film the classic crying, snotting, I'm so scared scene and we huddled under a blanket and we like forced ourselves to cry and drip snot and we would go, I'm so scared. I'm so scared of Ross. <laughs> so halfway through the summer, it was time for our movie premiere. We went over to my house. My parents set up the living room like a movie theater. All of the parents sat in the back row on the couch. And us, the filmmakers, got to sit in the front row, which was the floor with a blanket. Um, my dad hooks the camcorder up to the VCR. We lower the lights. And our previews start playing. Because, again, we were fucking professionals. So we also made previews for our film. Uh, on the screen, there's a title card that says, Unabrow. <laughs> Cut to Liz, sitting in a cardboard box in my parents' unfinished basement, with a large unibrow drawn onto her head with a marker. She looks directly into the camera and just goes, Hello, my name's Unabrow, and I live in a box. <laughs> As the trailer fades to black, Liz and I are weeping. We are laughing so hard. Like when you're a garbage tween, like unibrow plus cardboard box, like fucking genius. We look back at our parents and like, they're a little skeptical. They're like, was that racist? Like, I don't know. You know, and it, it, you know, it made us a little sad. Like, God, those poor idiots, like, don't know what's funny. <laughs> Our next preview starts. It is called Double O Loser. <laughs> 
again, as I'm saying these out loud in front of other people, it's really hitting me just like how fucking dumb we are. Uh, Double O Loser was our James Bond spoof. Uh, it opens on me standing at the top of uh, the unfinished basement stairs in a black mini skirt that's very tight. It's more of like, you know, a long, tight belt. Uh, I'm wearing platform shoes that are about six inches high from a year ago when I was a disco dancer for Halloween. A blonde wig and a neon pink tube top with water balloons stuffed in to, uh, you know, have the appearance of breasts. I'm holding a water gun backwards, so it's pointing into my face. I yell, freeze right there, and then fall down the entire flight of stairs. In the next shot of the trailer, I am just in a bathing suit running down my block, bumping into every parked car, sort of like a pinball. And then it just fades to black. Again. We are fucking hysterical. There is chocolate milk shooting out of our noses. I'm about to pee my pants. We're fucking geniuses. Like, this is up there with Austin Powers, we think. And, and I don't even look back, but just from behind in the back row of our theater, I can hear my mom just drain her glass of wine and go, Jesus, she went outside like that? So, uh, before I tell you about our last preview, I need to pause and remind you that I started this story by saying, tweens are garbage. I was no exception. Just remember that, and now we're back in. So, third preview. Uh, Liz and I decided we needed to throw in a period piece. You know, we needed our Oscar contender. So, the last thing we studied in history was the Holocaust. <laughs> We ran with it. God damn it. Ah, again, when you say it out loud. So, I don't remember the title of this film, sadly. The screen is black, except for a beam of light from a flashlight. And you can see uh, the, the railings of my parents' deck in the, in the nighttime. And the light starts sort of scanning around. And oh, there in the corner is me, Jolenta Greenberg, the Jewish one of the two of us, cowering in a corner on the deck, <laughs> clutching the railings, wearing an old gray sweater of my dad's, and just cowering. Oh, also, I have um, my mom's eyeshadow smeared under my eyes so they look hollow and gaunt. <laughs> Liz comes into frame. She's in a military uniform with a paper swastika wrapped around her arm. It was printer paper that we spent a long time coloring red with a marker. I feel like six saying this. And she's holding Jamie Blonde's water gun from uh, our Double O Loser trailer. And she just starts screaming, Jew, Jew, you dirty Jew. And before she can even finish saying, you dirty Jew, all of a sudden the lights are on, the screen is black. We look behind us. My dad's standing there with a the camcorder, like swinging because he has just ripped it from the wall. 
Um, my mom is laughing so hard. She's not even making a sound, but like just tears are streaming down her face. And Liz's poor conservative parents, like they were as pale as the ghost that they probably saw at Dartmouth when they met at business school. Like they were mortified. Her mom just sort of stood there and her mouth just kept kind of like opening. And she had a look on her face like she wanted to say something nice and motherly, but like just no words were coming. Like there was nothing to say. And Liz's dad, just through clenched teeth, goes, girls, you can never show this to anyone. (laughs) And we don't even get to the movie. (laughs) Liz and I are clearly livid. (laughs) We storm off and we go get the warm beer we stole from the garage earlier and hid under a bed and drink it in a hiding spot together. (laughs) And as our rage subsides, we're like, wait, who gives a shit if those idiots didn't like our movies? We know they were great. And like, I don't care if they don't get it. Like, if we get it, that's enough. (laughs) And like, we were awful. We were awful tweens with like garbage taste and like no sense of what was appropriate socially. But like, it didn't matter because we were friends and we were weirdos and we were different kind of weirdos, but like somehow it worked. And I feel like we were so lucky because we must have been so fucking annoying together. (laughs) Like we sucked, we sucked. And like everything we tried to put out into the world was just bad. Like we were making the world a worse place (laughs) by making art. Because our parents saw that little spark between us and we're like, you know what? Like, they might be doing damage to the world, but like they're doing good for each other. So we're gonna let them keep running with it. And we did, we did. Liz is still my friend. We've seen each other through weddings and deaths and dog adoptions. Um, And she reminded me she was in town a few weeks ago and we had brunch, because of course. Um, but she reminded me of the project we did after the Schwimmer Warlock project. Um, and that project was just a photo shoot of us dressed in what we called full whore makeup. (laughs) Humping the railing. Pumping the railing of my parents' entryway. <laughs> Thank you.
This is Risk. This is the Sundays behind me now. Uh, it's a song about romantic love, not about two little girls making movies about Nazis. But, you know, what can you do? Now I want to talk to you about a new podcast called Gossip. When rumors are this juicy, does it even matter if they're true? Gossip is the first ever comedic soap opera podcast from the mind of actor and comedian Allison Raskin. Allison is also a New York Times bestselling author and co-creator of the Just Between Us YouTube channel. In Gossip, three unlikely friends, Valerie, Mia, and Bethany, meet each week at the Golden Cup Coffee Corner to dish about the latest rumors floating around their not-so-traditional suburban town, Golden Acres. There's infidelity, epic fights, crazy sisters, former bachelorettes, girls gone missing, murder, maybe even a serial killer priest. And each week you'll learn more about the three women's juicy past as the story unfolds. If you're a fan of shows like Jane the Virgin, Desperate House Lies, Big Little Lies, you'll love gossip. Get in on the rumors before you're left out. Listen to episodes one and two of Gossip now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your shows. Now, folks, I am holding in my hands right now the real, the actual, the finished <laughs> Risk book. I am so excited. It is so gorgeous, and it's so thick. It's thicker than the galleys somehow. But you know what? I, I, I didn't even realize that there was a letter in it from our editor, a personal letter that was stuck in the book addressed to me and JC from our editor at Hachette, David Lamb. He said, what a journey it's been. The product of all that hard work is astonishingly good. The book is so gripping, so impossible to put down. It so consistently brought me to tears. There's an incredible power to these stories that shines through on every page. I mean, it is such a joy to work with people who so passionately believe in what we do. And Liz Parker, our agent, and David Lamb at Hachette have been amazing. So as you know, we are desperately hoping to get up to something like 2,000 pre-orders before July 17th, which is very, very, very close. We're getting close to 1,000. Uh, listen, it, tell everyone you know to pre-order several copies of the books to give to friends. You go to theriskbook.com or you can text to the number 900-900, the word risk, and that'll send you into the pre-ordering process. You can email me at kevin at show.com proof that you did pre-order it, and I'll sing your name on the show at the end. Also, you know, once you do get the book, this is getting a little ahead of ourselves, but once you do, be sure and give us a great review on Amazon. We're just getting very, very excited about the book being a reality, and we just want everyone in the world to get it. So that's theriskbook.com. Get your pre-ordering in gear. Now, our final story on this week's episode. I think this is one that a lot of people are going to be sharing with friends and family. You know, we always encourage people, if you hear a story on the show that really makes an impression on you write it down you know write down what episode it was in and where on the episode it was and then share with people hey listen to this one because that's actually what introduces a lot of people to the show one particular story this one <laughs> i was crying while recording it with david if you don't know david kreb we met 
within about uh, somewhere in the year around that the Risk podcast first started because Michelle Walson was producing the show back then and we started Risk and then we thought, hey, we should start teaching this stuff too. This was before our school, the story studio ever existed. So one of the first classes we ever taught David Crabb was one of the students in that class and he was so goddamn good that Michelle and I were kind of learning from him, our star student, <laughs> while we were learning how to teach about storytelling. But since then, David has written an amazing memoir, Bad Kid. He now teaches for the Story Studio out in Los Angeles and sometimes co-hosts the Risk Show out there. You can look him up at davidcrab.net. You know, he's a dear friend of the family, basically, to us now. And on Instagram and Facebook over the past several months, I saw that he was going through quite an ordeal. And I said, listen, if you ever want to share that story on the show in the future sometime, let me know. And to my surprise, he wanted to share about it right away. So that is the journey we're about to go on. This is David Crabb with a story we call... For the love of Charlie. So when I was a little boy, I had lots and lots of dogs up until the age of about 12, and dogs kind of came and went willy-nilly. This is for multiple reasons. My parents got divorced when I was two. There were multiple engagements and boyfriends and girlfriends and marriages and divorces. And I remember feeling like, especially like as I got older, knowing I was closeted and I was like a queer kid in Texas, I always kind of felt like that Pinocchio thing, you know, like wanting to be a real boy. Part of this thing about a new boyfriend or a new wife was like, oh, I'm closer to like a nuclear family now, right? Like, I'm going to be a boy. And I, and I would try all the things. I would try to play sports. We would go to church. I remember sitting in church and even in a young age being like, God, they're so into this. And like, there's no proof. Like, what's happening? Everything that I did around family kind of felt like that. Athletics didn't feel right. Every time a ball came at me, I just ran away. Like, I couldn't stay there and catch it. But the one part of all of these comings and goings of this nuclear family were dogs. Like, the dog felt right. For all the ways that I wanted to be like a boy with like a sister and a house who like goes to church and has a baseball mitt, it never worked out. But the dog was always the only part of it that I really, really missed. There was uh, Brandy and Ginger, two German Shepherds. One of them had to wear a muzzle around me at first because she wanted to destroy me, that was Brandy. And one night I walked into the kitchen as a little boy and she was growling at me and I thought she was gonna kill me and my mom's boyfriend came in and said stop and there was a scorpion on the floor between us. And Brandy had been standing over it and that night I went to bed and Brandy slept in the bed with me. And she did every night after that. But that ended because that relationship got volatile and like we had to kind of like leave under cover of night and my mom and I had to get out of the house and I'll always remember going to my mom's Chevette with like my garbage bag of stuff. And as we were packing back and forth trying to be quiet, when we finally get ready to leave, we'd go to the car and the doors had been open and sitting in the passenger and driver's seat were each of the dogs just staring at us, just like smiling like, we'll go with you guys. 
and we had to like plead with them through tears to like get out of the car. And if you've ever tried to like make an animal excited to move while you're like openly like sobbing and trying to keep the noise down because it's two in the morning and you got to get to an econo lodge, it's really fucking difficult. There was another dog named Shelly that was my stepmother's. They had a, a rough go of it, and I remember my stepmother left one morning for a jog with Shelly and never came back. That was the way she ended that marriage, and that was the last time I saw uh, Shelly. And even growing up, I loved dogs. If I was like on acid at a party in high school and everyone was like having fun, I'd be like, there's a dog here, and you'd find me like in the corner with huge pupils, just like talking to a dog. Like That was my jam. Years and years later, I'd been with my boyfriend, Jack, for like six or seven years, and we had gone through this crazy thing where we found this deformed kitten that had lateral paralysis. The vet wanted to put it down, and we nursed it back to health. Would have been great if I wasn't allergic to cats, but once we got her up on her feet and her sister, who was also in the house, it was a nightmare. So we had to find them a house and get rid of them. But it planted this seed. It made me realize I, I love caring for a thing, and Jack had never grown up with animals, and was like, I want to do that. Like, he was bummed about it. He's not allergic. He was like, I want that black cat, you know? So years later, we decided, you know, let's do it. So we looked online uh, at these dogs. There was like a dog meet and greet. Brooklyn Badass Animal Rescue is the name of this place. We went to this meet and greet. We found this like medium-sized orange dog that was really beautiful. I forget his name, but we were going to meet him. He was kind of like a, he was medium-sized, but he was like a man's dog. We weren't going to be one of those gay couples that had one of those like tiny like Paris Hilton things. We were like, no chihuahuas, no teacups, no appleheads. And we go to the dog meet and greet and we find the dog, big orange dog sitting in the corner and we go up to it. And, you know, as much as I love dogs and connect with them, as I told you, this dog just had, like, no je ne sais quoi. And a lot of the time with these rescue dogs, like, they're still in a state of, like, shock. So I kept trying to tell myself that, but the dog just didn't seem into us. It just didn't seem like it was clicking. And at one point, we're on our hunches and we're petting the dog, trying to get it to activate. And it starts growling and it strips its teeth and literally like slobber. And I'm like, it's like a Cujo moment. And I look and it's growling at something coming up to us. This little white dog, probably like 10, 11 pounds. He's got a black, like Martin Scorsese eyebrow over one eye, a few little black freckles underneath this little coat it's wearing. And his ass is shaven. There's, his ass is like a pink square of skin with like a Frankenstein scar with like 20 stitches on it. And he's holding up his right back leg. He's tripoding over to us, like hobbling over. And I'm like, oh my God, this dog that we came to meet is going to destroy this little dog. And the little dog just kind of really blank stared, like looked at the dog snarling. And then just brushed past him and looked at us like, anyway, bitch, what's up with you guys? And Jack always remembers me looking at him and he's like, that's the moment. Like I looked at him like, this is the one. You know, like that was the Charlie Brown Christmas tree that I wanted. The little messed up missing branches. Like I was like, that's the one. Now. The dog, as we left, they were like, oh, you're taking Big Daddy? They had named this dog Big Daddy, and as a smaller-statured man, I was like, don't mock the dog, you know? But it was really, really cute, and for a while, he was Big Daddy. We took him home, and over the next week or two, we got to know him, and he was adorable and cute. We didn't know if we wanted to change his name. He was punk. He was Rex. He was a few things, and then we thought maybe we should keep Big Daddy. That's what he came with. They found him in Alabama after a storm. The reason he had those stitches is because he busted his leg and he was in a kill shelter, and the bones had just grown. He was just sitting there for two months with the bones growing into place. So when they saved him, they had to like saw that like he'd been through a lot, right? And I was like, he's Big Daddy. You know, these people in Selma, I actually had to call Selma once to get doctor's records. And I always remember this woman's like, yeah. And I said, Big Daddy, do you remember? Do we remember? Arthur, they got Big Daddy. He is in New York City. Oh my God. I mean, like they like love this dog. 
he had lived like apparently on a bed under like the receptionist's office for like a month while he was healing. So we thought that the name was really meaningful and we should keep it. And then one day we were leaving my apartment. I'll always remember I was locking up the apartment and Jack, my boyfriend, is six and a half feet tall. And I'm a smaller guy. So it's all I'm always like kind of Melania Trumping behind him. Do you know what I mean? Like, wait for me, Donald. Because he walks so fast without walking fast at all. And we live in this little Polish neighborhood in Brooklyn where there are these like women and moo's that watch the street through their box fans that hold up the window. Do you know what I'm talking about? And I always remember as I ran to catch up with them, I said, Big Daddy, wait, Big Daddy. And I always remember this like Polish woman grimacing, like this tiny homosexual yelling for this big man homo lover. And that was like the, the afternoon I was like, we're changing his fucking name. He's not Big Daddy. So very shortly after that, he became Charlie, which we thought was like singular and his. And then we went to the dog park and I was like, Charlie, 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 Charlie. Totally, totally common. But it was really, really uh, fitting for him. We lived in a railroad apartment and he would love like running back and forth and catching the ball. He'd do that just for hours. He would really get under the sheets at night. And one of my favorite things the first few weeks we had him is he would go all the way under the sheets and I would wake up before I got used to him being there and have this feeling I was being watched. And I would look and it would be like a ghost dog. It was just the shape of a blanket, you know, like of a Halloween ghost, you know, with the kid with the holes in it, of just his head under the blanket just like with wheezing watching me. And I was like, this is terrifying and adorable. I love them. And he loved sunlight, you know. In our little apartments on the second floor, the angle of light was weird, but that little time of day when that little like square of sunlight, he would just follow that, just cooking like a burrito. I'd go and I'd touch him and I'd be like, dude, you're gonna like burn up under the heat lamp, you know? He was like a fast food burger, just cooking and cooking. But he loved it. He was a Chihuahua Jack Russell, about 11, 12 pounds, on a fat day, 13 and a half, if it was winter. But um, I always tried to like pound him down at the vet, which is so funny, like he was a human. He would be like, David, I'm on a diet. But really, really cute, little black specks. And he looked a lot like a chihuahua, but if people ever met him that had ever had a Jack Russell, they were like, that dog's part Jack Russell. Like it was a real thing you could see about him. His ears were burnished like dry leaves. When they burn, they kind of get like the sizzle around the heat. They were white, but they have a little black around the edge, little black dot over his eye. And I always remember I probably had him two two or three weeks, and I'm walking him in Williamsburg. He's in a little jacket, just looking all cute. And we walk by this Thai restaurant, and there's this like German-looking tourist guy, and he looks like he's like a German DJ. He's got big old chains. He's in like funky Adidas pants and high tops, and he's got the big cans and big headphones on. So cool on his phone. And he looks at Charlie, and he lights up. He becomes like a child. And in broken English, he says, Oh, this dog is like the dog of a boy from a story. I I kind of wanted to just melt and, like, hug him. But I had to be like, yeah, he's pretty cool, huh? But it was like he said the thing in his broken English that was, like, the thing I wanted from a dog. That was what I wanted to feel, you know? And that was what Charlie gave me. He just immediately kind of activated life and in a way like took me back to my youth and all those times that I had loved dogs and lost them but he was like mine now after we got Charlie and I was putting together my solo show Bad Kid it really was kind of like as much as I'm joking about the dog of a boy from a story and, and I have no illusions that dogs make magic happen but for me I really do feel like something happened right around now where I just kind of came into my own. Like, everything feels like it kind of lit up, you know? I was with this guy that I'd been with for years. We were going to get married. I published a book. You know, all these just great things happened. And, and it felt like I had a family and a life, and the dog was really part of it. It was, like, intrinsic to it. And when I was sick, because I had Crohn's disease, you know, that was a big thing about Charlie. He was a really energetic dog. 
But when I was sick with Crohn's disease and really, really ill and on the couch, it was like whatever that little engine is in him that was like constant play, constant food, it just shut off. He just laid with me and there was no bothering me. It was like, it was like he knew he would just stay with me unless there was like a patch of sunlight somewhere on the floor when he was like following that around, like cooking like a burrito, you know? And in a lot of ways, like I kind of feel like we were alike, which a lot of people say about their dogs, I know. But he kind of had this bad hip. I kind of had like, because of my Crohn's, like a bad hip. When it would get rainy or wintry, I'd become like a grumpy, like a vet. You know, it's like, you know, storms are coming, uh, like my back hurts. And when winter, there was no patch of light. Charlie and in a lot of ways for me like winter became increasingly hard so my husband's an actor Jack and he wanted to act in a different way so we were like let's move to Los Angeles and we were very excited about doing this um, together all three of us when we moved a lot of dramatic good and bad stuff happened you know my book came out right before we moved and then in the aftermath of that it just felt like you know my father stopped talking to me he cut me out of his life for no reason i'll know i'll assume it's because my book was super queer uh a month before i was going to get married to jack which was its own kind of big change uh, my appendix almost exploded i had to have an emergency removed and then a week later some horrible infection happened i had to go back to the hospital and i was there for like a week 10 days and then we took this great road trip and you know la was great and beautiful and we were so happy and charlie was just always cooking like a burrito like wherever he wanted but then it was you know 2016 and that year was traumatic and you were in a new place the election was happening all of my exchanges online seemed to be loaded with like a lot of animosity I had to lose some people I care about a lot and it just sort of felt like a difficult time difficult or at least full of change but the thing about it was that like Charlie was always there you know I depend on my husband he's my rock we've been together 15 years from right now I love him but that little dog was like a different kind of rock. And I think anyone that's had a pet understands that difference. The way you commune with an animal and need it and it maybe needs you is not like a human. And it was always good to have Charlie there for all of that. I mean, when we even got married, he's on our wedding cards. Like our wedding cards, it's like J and D and then like a drawing of his face. Because like I said, we're not homos with a little white dog. That is the faggiest thing. I can't believe I just said that. Anyway, it's true. But L.A. was great. Charlie could run and play, and there was always sun. I remember these great days. I became obsessed with Grace Jones right when we moved, and I would endlessly play Grace Jones' record. There was a song called Bullshit. Have you ever known it from Warm Weather? I'm sick and tired of this bullshit. I would just listen to that song, and it was almost like Charlie would dance. Like, he knew that I was energized and the sun was out, and he just seemed more playful. Like, he really lit up when we were there. Now, Charlie was about seven. He wasn't an old dog, but he started to show some weird traits. His head seemed to be cocked to the side sometimes, and when he lowered it to eat, it was almost like he had vertigo. He would get dizzy, so they thought it was a neck problem, and then he would sort of stumble, have issues around stairs, and then they thought, well, it's a vertebrae lower down, and he should live in a cage for a while, which was its own kind of nightmare. I'm like, I don't know how I put this energetic little thing that loves dancing to Grace Jones in a cage, and I tried it, and then I always remember, you know, this was about a month into these rolling diagnoses, I came into the living room and he was having a full seizure. His nose was stuck in the cage because I guess he was sticking it through wanting out when it happened. I just remember his body, like the weight of it hanging and on his snout. And I just screamed and I, I got him out of it and I held him and we took him back. So they got him on drugs for seizures and he was on a lot of prednisone and steroids and he seemed to be holding his own. The seizures went away. He had a couple more that were pretty intense that I had to hold him through with the full freaking out and snarling and foaming. But the drug seemed to make him better. And we very quickly found ourselves in that like cyclone of what's wrong. It wasn't that we were getting a specific diagnosis. It's that they did not know. There was no choice to make about 
how good or bad is he? They were like, well, let's figure it out and then we'll move on. So Christmas rolled around and we took him to Texas to see my mom and she had woven him a blanket she wanted to give him. And he was as much a part of that family in Texas as he was in Brooklyn with me and Jack. And towards the end of that trip, it was a fun trip because Jack's sister and my nephew Leo, this beautiful little five-year-old kid who I adore, were moving from Pennsylvania to where we lived. And Leo is half black and they lived in a part of Pennsylvania where after Trump, some weird signs went up. You know, eh, you know what I'm talking about. That was a Confederate flag in a window. So I was kind of excited about moving even more of my family through my family's home in Texas to get them to like California. It was really exciting. But we noticed near the end of that trip that Charlie was circling, and it seemed like he was hungry and scavenging, but the circles were getting tighter. On the way back, he crapped all over this hotel room. I remember I walked in, and I was like, why does this hotel room smell? And we realized that he had taken a dump the moment we got in, and we had proceeded to track it over the entire hotel room. There was just crap everywhere, which was unlike him. And then we got back home, and it was January 2nd. At 11 a.m. that morning, we'd moved into this beautiful house three months earlier where Charlie had had a yard and could run. We could just let him out. We never really had that. And the landlords that had signed a two-year lease with us told us, sorry, we're moving and we have to take the house away from you. We're still processing this and where we're going to go and what we're going to do when Charlie has a seizure. He's in the backyard and I go to pick him up and he screams and his skin is reactive to touch. It's like he thinks he's being hurt. He falls over and we take him back to the hospital. They give him some drugs. They say, oh, he's fine, but his heart rate was up. And when we bring him home, I pick up a dog that's like not my dog. He's wheezing constantly in pain, like, and they're like, oh, it's the drugs that'll wear off. He does it all night and the next morning we wake up and he's in so much pain that we move him to go outside in the crate. And he stumbles around and he falls over. We take him back to the hospital And they give him chemotherapy because they say his heart rate's so high, whatever's wrong with him, it's got to be some kind of tumor or cancer. And it's weird because we're giving him preventative chemotherapy, which is a thing I never would have thought that I would have done for a dog or that was even a thing. And I always remember when they told us, they were like, just so you know, we think this is probably a brain tumor or a condition called encephalitis, but it could be toxoplasmosis. So you need to know if it is toxoplasmosis, the chemotherapy you're signing up to give him will kill him. And I remember saying... So you're telling me right now that I have to take emergency action to save my pet, but there's a small chance that the thing I'm doing will kill him straight away, and they say yes. And that was, I remember, the first of what would become just an ongoing, rolling series of like emotional blackouts, just like these tense moments where we made these choices. They were financial choices and emotional choices where we just couldn't let this dog go because what happened over the next few weeks was... He just proceeded to fall apart right in front of our eyes for no reason that they could really put a finger on. It was a set of things that they couldn't know. He wandered around the house in circles. He was confused. He peed everywhere. He couldn't navigate stairs. Sometimes it was almost like the world to his left wasn't there. He couldn't see anything. We would find him standing in the corner. And on Leo's first day of school, this my little nephew that I was so happy to bring to L.A. to be a part and have him in this like new life and this new culture. It was his first day of school, and he walked out in his backpack. And right when he looked at Charlie, Charlie looked at him. And then Charlie just screamed. It was just a scream of pain. And he fell over. And it was like he died. His tongue fell out of his mouth. And I picked him up. And Leo's mother, my sister-in-law, was trying to scoop Leo up. And I remember Leo just so sweetly being like, is Charlie okay? And we're like, yeah. And, you know, if you've ever had that situation where you're, you're so terrified, but you have to kind of modulate your reaction to keep a kid calm. I've never had to do that. And we put Charlie in the car and we drove him like 
down the highway, like breakneck speed. I remember screaming at Jack, hurry! And he's like, I'm going 70 miles an hour, you know? And we literally handed Charlie in a blanket over a desk and we knocked over a cup of coffee and a cup of pens and they just took him. And they knew us at this point at this hospital. Like he'd been in there a few times. And they said that whatever it was that was wrong, it was gonna need real treatment. A day later, he managed to make it through the night. They kept him going on this crazy drug called mannitol, which is like the cure-all for any kind of brain inflammation. They did MRIs and they found that he had a swelling on the right side of his brain. They had no idea what it was, and we went to a neurologist at a cancer center on the other side of town. Now, if you've ever graduated from like the animal ER to like the specialty center, it's strange. You're there for your little dog and they're bringing you like coffee and tea and people are asking if you need anything and it, it's nice, but it feels heavy. It feels like, oh, we've graduated to like something bigger. So we met with a neurologist who said, your dog is fading away really quickly. Ideally, what I would want to do is a, a month long series of radiations that will cost probably like four or five thousand dollars and we'd spent four or five at this point and he said we have to put your dog under 16 times to do this your dog will not survive that process but there's a special thing we've only done it 400 times i do it it's only done here and in new york at one place and it's called stereotactic radiation we do it over a week in three different radiations outpatient and it costs i haven't said this out loud and it cost $14,000. You know, Jack and I are artists. We don't have a lot of money, but I have that rainy day credit card with a 29% APR, like at the bottom of a box. And I was like, I have to do it. You know, and we asked the doctor, we were like, we're not those people that want to hear bullshit. You know what I mean? Tell us. And he's like, guys, I would be really honest. We're not in the business of keeping people hanging on. Your dog is totally healthy. He's so young. He has a mass in one part of his brain. It's focal. We can point at it. It hasn't spread anywhere. He's the ideal candidate for this thing if you want to do it. So we said, yeah, I mean, of course we're going to do it. So we're trying to be excited. We check Charlie in to the treatment center and they do the first night and the first night they're supposed to do it. And the next morning we pick him up and we come home and they call us and they say, he's had just about the worst response we've ever seen to this. He's almost in a coma like state. There's no way that he can leave tonight. So we're going to have to keep him and hold off on the second radiation to see if he survives what we've done. You know, whenever you go and do these things, there's the very nice gay guy with spiky hair and an iPad. And he was, we called him the messenger of doom. He meant no harm, but he would come in with the iPad with the dollar sign and the number and the checks and you shove your fingerprint on it. And all of a sudden that number that we'd agreed to that seemed so impossible just grew. And we just kept... That number, once the dog is not outpatient and he's there for five days, it just grew and we just said, we'll do it. And we found veterinary credit cards that you can get. And those days we just kept our phones on and we, they were like, stay by your phone. And they'd call in the morning and say, be by your phone today, you know? It just felt like constantly like hanging on. And I remember about the fifth night, Jack, when it was in the backyard and I heard him like sobbing and he's kind of the rock and I'm like the emotional weirdo. And I went back there and he was weeping and I said, babe, are you okay? And I knew he wasn't okay, but the reaction for him was very strong. And he said, it just occurred to me that he might not make it. I remember it was so weird because my first thought was, wow, I haven't had a moment where I thought he would. And it was such a strange thing to think about in terms of our relationship and my natural 
instincts and my pessimism and the way that I'm always looking for, like, what is that thing? How is the story going to get fucked up, right? About three days later, they get him good enough that they can do the next radiation treatment, which is amazing. We didn't think he was going to make it. And they do the next one. And the next morning they say, he's doing pretty good. He's doing pretty good. I think it's going to work. And the whole time we're working towards this, what we're working for is an estimated 17 to 25 months of life extension, just to give you an idea of what we're signing on this dotted line for, like what we're paying for. And it makes sense every time you think of like two more years. And I keep telling myself, you know, like we adopted him as this like busted little thing from a hurricane in Alabama. Like it's our duty. It doesn't matter how much it costs, you know? I just wanted to make it through the process. And the morning of the third process, it's the last one, and it's only 48 hours later, the way it was supposed to have been between all of them. I call and I'm like, how is he? And they say, he's had a grand mal seizure this morning and we had to intubate him. And I remember having someone told me they had to intubate my dog and weeping out of feeling so bad for what that's like for him. And also just seeing that iPad with that thumbprint and imagining like, the tension of what does that mean for that dollar sign? Like, where are we? Like, I didn't even know where we were anymore. And, you know, once you're in the gauntlet, you're just in. And the doctor tells me, I say, well, what you're going to do this morning, kill him? And the doctor says, man, at this point, I'm looking at your chart. I'm looking at all the things you've done. Can you live with yourself not killing him from the third of the last part? You know what I mean? Can you not do the last part and just think it's humane? And I said no. And they did it. And that afternoon, they said he seemed fine. And the next morning, they said, he's fucking amazing. And they actually said that because they knew us at this point, all of these people. Because during this whole process, I went and visited him. And every night, I would stay there. And they would bring me food sometimes. And they would come and hang out with him. And all the receptionists knew us. So they would talk to us like that. They were like, he fucking made it. <laughs> and the next day, they said, come pick him up. And we got to go pick him up and at this point he was shaved all over he was just pink splotches his ankles from all the ivs he looked like he'd just been through it and i remember leo when we got him home looked at him and very sweetly like whispered because he didn't want to insult charlie he pointed at one of the pink patches on him and said is charlie made of ham and i got to explain no he's made of dog he just is shaved in a lot of spots buddy and it was nice, like, I felt like I had my family back, you know, and the house had been a pain in the ass because, you know, we were losing it and we were dealing with all these numbers and how much they pay for breaking the lease and trying to be nice people. We'd come home and there would be like people in our house that were strangers and people would come by unannounced. And it was like hellish, but like for all of this dramatic stuff, like I had my dog back, I went back to that feeling of like, it can all go pear-shaped, but like, I have you. And not only do I have you, like I won you. I looked at him and all his like little pink patches and I would walk him and people would look at him, you know? And I'd been that person looking at a dog with patches and stuff and thought, you know, he's on his way out. And I, I remember wanting to tell people, no, fuck you, he made it, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he's not on his way out. These are like battle scars, you know? About a month and a half ago, this thing started to happen where Charlie was on a thousand pills and I was always giving him so much peanut butter. Our whole house smelled like fucking peanut butter from the peanut butter, the pill on the finger and put the peanut butter in the spoon and drop the spoon and the prednisone. I had charts and graphs for the seizure pill and the steroid and all this stuff. And I went to give him this pill and he couldn't find it. He couldn't find the peanut butter and I was holding the spoon right in front of his face. And I moved it to the left and it was all of a sudden like it appeared in his world. And it was so strange and it was this, I had this feeling, but I ignored it. I was like, this isn't good. 
And the next day, I picked up Jack from work with Charlie. We were going to go to the park. And Charlie was just walking through the grass, and it was the first time we'd been able to just take him to the park and see him in the grass since he'd gone through all of it after the six weeks of having him back, you know. And he had a seizure, and it was a little focal seizure, and it was just in his mouth, and it was different than the grandma seizures because it was like his lip was twitching and there was foam, but he was looking right at me, and it was almost like he had the presence of mind to be able to look at me with a face that was there away from the mouth and look at me and kind of be like, what the fuck's going on, Dad? Like, what is this? And we called the doctor, and as I called him, saying, like, you know, should we bring him in? They said, well, if he has another one. And Jack yells, he's having another one. And I look, and it's 30 minutes later. So we get him in the car to drive him, and then it's 10 minutes later. And then we're in the traffic, and it's just constant seizing. It doesn't stop, and it's 40 minutes of him. And he's looking at me like everything, like his eyes are working, and everything in the rest of his face is just its mind of its own. We get to the hospital, and we give them to him. It felt so small. It felt like he was in danger, but they were, they were going to give him some drugs. It was a little seizure. Lots of dogs live with seizures, and we were going to go home. And I remember we went home that night because they had to keep him in the hospital, and we got drunk. We just, we just drank. We called some old friends who we missed that we trust to just tell them, people you can cry to your dog about because you can't do that with everyone. And the next morning, the phone rang around 10. I knew when they always called from the hospital. And I said, hey, how is he? And they said, we haven't been able to stop his seizure. And I said, you mean he's been seizing all night? And they said, yeah, and he's almost in a coma now. We've given him something, I wanna say it's called propofol. I don't think they would have spoken to other people this way, but they were so familiar with me at that point. They were like, it's the Michael Jackson drug. That's what they all called it. It's the stuff he was on that killed him, right? It's heavy duty stuff. And it wasn't working. And I was with Jack and I said, well, what's the next step? And our regular doctor wasn't there, our specialist. She was away, but it was one of the really great doctors that are there that are also specialists. And he said, you know, I'm looking at Charlie's chart and I've seen him. I think the next step is we do an MRI and the MRI is 2,500, but you'll be able to see like if it's grown or if it hasn't grown. And we said, okay, great. And we were just about to hang up the phone and it's weird because Jack should have been the one that does this because I like to pretend. But I said, hey, before we get off the phone, can you walk me through what happens after the MRI? And the doctor said, well, the mass has grown and we've lost the battle. The mass is the same size. And then there's something new and horrible going on for him to be this sick. And I said, and that's it? And he said, yeah. Are you telling me that like, we're kind of like running out of hope? And he said, oh guys, you could put him down today if you want and we're all on your side. You've done a lot, and he's a really, really sick dog. You don't know what it's like to get a dog back that's been seizing for 24 hours. You don't know how much of him is going to be there. It's like he was trying to keep our hope up, but like I opened the door, and he said, you know, he's blind as of right now. He went blind last night. We got off the phone, and I talked to Jack, and I looked at him, and he's like, I'm ready. And I was so angry, I kind of wanted to punch him. Because I knew he was right. There was this part of me that just felt like it was right, you know? And we called the doctor and we said, we're going to do it. And even as we were doing it, I was like, we're not going to do this. Something in the day was going to happen. But I was going to go through the motions of going there to do it. And I went home and I remember I fucking, like, Julianne Moore screamed around the house. I told Jack, I said, I feel like Cher at the end of Mask. Going around the house, wrecking everything with a beer stein. I was just grabbing everything of Charlie's and I was shoving it in the garbage bags. I was putting his beds in the garbage bags and his water bowl and his food. <laughs> 
because I wanted to go and do it and then just have no evidence of him when I came home, you know? And as I'm doing it, I hear a knock on the door and I'm sure it's gonna be some asshole that sees the for sale sign of our house, our beautiful house that we're losing, like we're losing everything as I feel, asking if she can come in and look at it because people do that for some reason, they think it's appropriate. And I stomp and I notice I move away from where Charlie's bed is. Like I walk around the phantom place and it's this little Mexican woman with these two other Mexican people. And she hands me this flyer and it says, Jesus is coming. And I usually hate this Bible-thumping shit, but I'm just so pleased that she's not what I thought she was. And I feel so delicate that I just, like, I take the brochure and I start crying and I say, thank you. Thank you. We go to the hospital. We wait in a room. And they say, we're going to bring him to you. And they bring him in on this little hydraulic thing that goes down. And... His eyes are in a stasis, so they're just wobbling back and forth in his head and his tongue. It's like, I didn't know he had so much tongue because it all seems like it's forced out of his mouth and it's dry. It's like he hasn't brought it in for a long time and he has a wound on the side that's like cracked like a chap lip and it's like bleeding. He just looks so bad and um, they put him on the floor and we get to be with him for a while and they have him hooked up to machines. And it, you know, really could have taken half an hour, but there was literally like, it was like the end of Wizard of Oz. Like, it was like Dorothy leaving. It was like every single person at work there, the receptionist, the hilarious like gay black guy with the topaz contact lenses that brought us water and tea. This woman, Danielle, she came in. Danielle was a person that took care of Charlie a lot when he was there the two weeks. And when we would visit, she told us one time, she's like, I hope you don't mind that I dance with him. I was like, are you dancing with him? And she's like, well, He's been here longer than any of the other dogs, so he, we kind of feel like he's ours, and he gets really calm when you hold him. I say, I know. And she said, so we danced to Etta James together. <laughs> and I said, Etta James? And she said, yeah, we danced to At Last. And she had told us that, and when he came home and was happy, Jack had actually bought that Etta James record, and it was a record that we played a lot. And it was funny, because that was like the song that Jack connected to Charlie, but for me, it was Sunday kind of love. We brought him home on a Sunday, and. Every time I heard that song, I thought of him. And Daniel came to say goodbye, and she came in crying. It was like there was no, no one was keeping up appearances. Like, people at work, they were, like, breaking down, right? And Danielle, like, pets him, and we thank her. And then I look at her, and I say, I know this is weird, and he's hooked up to so many things, but can we just take him outside, just into the sun for one last time? And she said, yeah. So she unhooks him from his machines, and um, we take him outside, and we all three, even Danielle, dance with him. And she has Etta James on her phone, so we get to dance with him. And then I film Jack holding him, and we listen to Sunday kind of love. And I guess the propofol, or whatever it was, was leaving his bloodstream pretty quickly. And there was this little moment where, like, he kind of, like, licked his lips. His, like, tongue went in, and his eyes looked at me. And he was, like, super present. And I have it on video, and I, I either want to watch it all the time, or I never want to watch it, you know? And uh, he got to be in the sun, and it was nice. And we took him back inside, and he'd only been off the propofol for 10 minutes, maybe. And by the time we got back inside, the twitching and the eyes, it all started to happen. I remember that was the moment where I was like, I can do this. We need to do this, right? And right as we're waiting, the doctor comes in and says, hey, your specialist who you've been dealing with, 
She's at the airport. She's at a phone. She wanted to talk to you. I take it outside and she says, well, there's a few things you can do. One is you cannot do the MRI. Let's see if the drugs work overnight. And all of a sudden she starts giving me a game plan that is so legitimately hopeful for me. And I hear her say, but of course, he's very sick. And they've been saying this from the start. Whatever choice you made is humane. You guys have done so much. But it's this like little glimmer. And I go back inside and I tell Jack, I'm like, hey, so here are a few options. And I start going through it all. And I'm done. And there's this sort of stupid smile on my face. And Jack looks at me and he just gestures down to Charlie and he says, stop. We can't do this anymore. And he says, look at him. And I look at him. I think of what the doctor said, and I can tell he probably really can barely see. And I, I think of how much we've gone through and how much at this point we're putting him through, you know, to go through all this. And I tell him, okay, let's do it. So the doctor comes in, and he has these three syringes. And, you know, you have this expectation. Whenever you have a pet, even if they're a puppy, you think about this. But as it's happening, you're like, oh, shit, this is happening, you know. Because I always thought he was going to be one of those little old chihuahua-type dogs. They get real old. You know the old ones? They get small, but seemingly their penis sheath gets... They just look like they're old and they're blind and they got a big dong. You know, that was always how I imagined Charlie. Just one of those old, grumpy, snaggletooth. And as I'm, like, holding him, I'm looking at him. It's crazy to me that's happening. And, you know, the doctor says, he explains, you know, we do the first one and then there's the second and it should happen very quickly. And he tells us he won't close his eyes, which... I always remember striking me. He's like, so weird. I didn't know that. And as he starts to do it, he says, I want you to know, I just called your specialist and told him your decision. And she thinks that's the best thing to do. And I remember sort of taking solace in that. And he gave Charlie and his little IV the first shot. I remember halfway through, the way I worded it was so weird. I just blurted out, please tell me this is a valid choice. It was such an unromantic way of saying it. I just blurted that out. And he, and he looked at me. I always remember... I was like, you know, we barely knew this doctor. And he looked at me and he had tears in his eyes. And he said, this is a valid choice. He said, I've talked to all those people out there about how hard you guys have fought. And you should be really proud of yourself. And then he gave him the second shot. It happened so fast. It's just like they say. It's just like everything stops. And then he took out his stethoscope and he felt around. Which seems so weird. I guess they need to be sure. And he said... He's gone. And then they let us be alone with him for a while. I was not freaked out by his body. I thought that would be a thing, you know. We held him for a long time and uh, kissed him and we pet him. And then we laid him on the couch. Because that was how you had to leave him. It was this room with horrible, like, forest wallpaper with, like, the sun breaking through. Like, the kind of room designed for horrible things. And it was a room that all those visits where I'd gone to see Charlie, I saw people come out of it broken. And I remember thinking, like, I don't want to be one of those people. And as we were leaving, we left his blanket with him and I set him up on the couch. I remember it was important to set him up just the way that he liked being on the couch at home. And I sat next to him the way he liked to lay when I wrote, because that was what he did with me. He laid with me whenever I wrote. Every morning I had my coffee, and he just laid with me. And I just felt that one more time. We wrapped him up, and we opened the door, and we like looked in one last time, and we just said, we love you. And we left. 
And uh, they get you out of there very quickly. You thumbprint the iPad again, and you leave, and you want to leave. And we got in the car, and Jack said, we're going to go to the beach. And on the drive to the beach, which was so close, I think the first thing that hit me was just the weight of all of that, like, sorrow and trauma just being gone. Like, I wasn't happy, but I felt clear, you know? It felt, like, really zen in a way. I felt blank. And we got to the beach. It was, like, right at sunset. And I remember walking alone, and in the sidewalk, there was this little rock, and it was this small, smooth, oval rock and had, like, a little divot in the middle. And I just remember very clearly picking it up. And there's no rocks like this for anywhere around me. It's just sand. And I remember thinking, okay, you're Charlie. And I walked towards the beach and I held the rock in my hand and just was feeling it. And I thought, I'm going to get to the beach and I'm going to throw this rock into it. And I'm going to let go of all of the stuff that has been piling up inside of me. And when I got to the beach, I just yelled, I want so much stuff back. I want my home back. I thought of leaving New York. I thought of wanting my dad back. I thought of wanting my fucking house back. I looked at my phone and there were calls from like debt collectors and I had called about bankruptcy because of the bills and I was like, I want my fucking money back. And I just yelled, I want my fucking dog back. And I was gonna throw the rock and I just, I couldn't because I just need to hold on to this for a little bit longer. I put it in my pocket and immediately that clear feeling came back and I took a breath and I got in the car with Jack and I drove him home. And I always remember that drive home. We didn't speak at all. We just were listening to a piano mix on the radio. And we got to our house and we pulled up. And the moment we pulled up and looked at our house, the worst feelings came back. I thought, like, I've never come home with you to no one. And we went inside our house and we were in there just a couple seconds and I was just about to break down when Jack said, someone's been here. And that fire of just thinking of the realtors and who had been in there and what had they done, what had they like, I just started to go into this rage and right before it could happen, Jack said, hey, look, and we looked on the dining room table and there were these flowers, there was this huge bouquet of, of white flowers and he went into our kitchen and it was full of groceries, like everything, the freezer and the fridge and the pantry and uh, there was a note from his sister and his family and they had had Claire go and just take care of us, you know. We cried in the kitchen together and we held each other and we went to bed. That night I woke up at about three in the morning and I placed my hand on Charlie next to me and I realized it was a blanket. And then in that totally cliche way you hear about, I realized, you know, it's like waking up into a bad dream. And I went outside. I just got on my knees in the backyard and I just like wept and I wept and I wept. And at one point I realized that I was holding the rock. I don't know how it got in my hand. I wasn't sleeping with it, but I like had it. And it occurred to me in this rush, <laughs> this crazy rush that was so hysterical that I have literally a pet rock. <laughs> and I started cackling in the dirt. Like I just started at three in the, like I don't know what my neighbors were thinking because I was loud. I was like, fuck you. I, mean, I was probably screaming at everything, at my dad and Donald Trump. I don't know what, and my dog. And then I'm like holding this rock and I'm laughing my ass off about this, about how absurd this is that I have this rock. And I take a breath and for just this moment, I remember a spot a few days earlier that where Charlie was laying in the grass in the spot where I am now. 
and I think back about how we were going to get that 17 to 25 months and we got six weeks, but that he was happy. And it makes me breathe and I calm down. And the next few days, I'm just on this roller coaster of emotion, right? Because when he was in the hospital, it's a different kind of tension. It's like, are we going to get him back? And there's always something to hold on to. And when he's gone, he's gone. And I didn't know it would feel like that. I want to rev up that engine of anticipation or stress and it's not there he's just gone a few days later i'm with my nephew leo and he was different in the days after charlie died i would catch him looking at me in this like curious way even when jack was there jack and i wouldn't talk to him. you could feel us not wanting to activate each other like let's not bring it up how do we get past it and one day we're having tacos and Jack and his sister are talking, and me and Leo are on the other side of the picnic bench, and Leo just looks at me. He says, are you still sad that Charlie's gone now? And I say, yeah, I am. And he says, what was in his brain? And I start to explain to Leo what cancer is and what a tumor is. And he's like, oh, well, where is it? And he has me point on his brain where it is. And he says, can't they put it inside a machine? And I say, well, we tried that, buddy. And he said, oh, I miss him too. And I say, yeah, I know, me too. And I'm so in love with him at this point. <laughs> I know it's the middle of the day, and I'm like broke, and I have a lot of messages from people that want money from me, but I'm like, I'm taking you for ice cream, and we're doing it right now. I don't ask his mother, I don't care. And we go down the street to this ice cream place, and we get him the bluest, most mouth-staining ice cream, because that's what he would want. And they give it to him in a cone, but he has to get a cup, because he's five, and he needs both. And we're walking down the street, and we're at a crosswalk. And he's so happy. I'm so happy he's there, and the sun is shining, and... I'm so grateful that he's moved and he's a part of my life and I feel like I'm like with my little family. And the light turns green for us to walk and he doesn't have a hand and he knows he has to hold a hand and he looks at me and it's just like, oh, I have my cup here and my cone, what do I, I'm like, buddy, I'm gonna grab your collar, is that okay? And as we're crossing the street, he's like, yeah, it's like I'm on a leash. And I say, yeah. And then he looks at me and he says, I can be Charlie now. I really have to, like, withhold my emotion, right? Because you don't want to freak a five-year-old out by stopping in the middle of a crosswalk and picking him up and saying, you're a gift and I love you, <laughs> you know, because that's what I want to do. And I hug him goodbye because I'm leaving on this trip. And I tell him I love him. And I promise him that when I get back to L.A., we're going to make a cake together. I don't know what it means, but he's obsessed with making a cake. I don't know. I say yes. Whatever you want, I'll do it. I felt really clear having that experience with him. There was something that felt so like pure about it, being able to like look at this child who just so innocently asked me if I hurt and getting to tell him, yeah, man, I really do, even though he can't process it, you know. And we get home, I look on the porch and there's this little box and I see this little biohazard symbol on it. And then I see in this little green sticker on the side, and I totally forgot this was happening, it said, be gentle, pet remains. And I opened it and it had a little wooden chest with his name on it and a little gold thing on the top and then we opened it and it's his ashes in a little plastic bag and I'd never seen ashes but zero part of me felt like that was him and there was this little ceramic disc and it was his paw print and it was so funny because we put off getting his nails clipped he hated it and we told him when he was healthy again like let's just let him be dragon lady for a while you know like let's let him just tap around the house you know and in that paw print the nail marks are so deep it's like a paw print with some like 
just deep spike skewers where his nails are. And we cried and we chuckled about it. And then we just laid on the floor, like in the big shaft of sunlight where he loved to lay. And then the postman came. And we were kind of embarrassed for a minute because he's always so sweet. And it's one of these California houses with a stoop. And we just leave the door open. And the postman looked at us and said, Oh, no dog today. Because Charlie always attacked him. And I just said to the postman, I said, No, no dog. And we said goodbye. And then we just laid on the floor for a while. That was about a month ago. And I immediately left. I went on this whirlwind trip for work. I'm like really running from my grief. I went to Texas and I went to Dublin and New York. I haven't been to that house. I'm a little bit worried about it. I've taken this rock with me everywhere. I put it out in places in like hotel rooms where he would be. Because he was a well-traveled dog. He went to Mexico and Canada and cross country. He loves hotels. And I feel fucking crazy doing it. Like I walk into rooms and I'm like, hey buddy. And then if I realize that I didn't say it with the right intonation, I actually say it again. I'm like, hey, buddy. And I'm fucking talking to a rock, you know? But it's what I need to do right now. Just have this rock. So much of this kind of loss is not what I expected, you know? I keep telling people when I get sad about Charlie, I know he's a dog, that thing I do to myself. And sometimes people let me do it. And the other night, I was with this writer, Adam Gopnik, and I started talking about that. I was like, he's just a dog. And he put his hand on me and he said, stop it. That dog is a member of your family. And we just lost a bird. And that bird was a member of our family. And never ever do that. That dog matters and you should be sad. And he really put his finger on this thing that's so lonely about this that I talked to other people who have lost animals. You know, if your friend Becky dies, that's terrible. And Becky has an intellectual capacity to do things in the world that an animal never could, right? But you get to go to a, a funeral and you get to talk to people about how, oh, didn't, isn't it funny how Becky did jazzercise for a while? Isn't it funny how politically active Becky was? Didn't you respect that? And wasn't it funny how she was afraid of heights, yet she went bungee? You did to do all that. And when it's your dog, it's just so lonely because people can have loved your dog. They can say, oh, your dog was so great at parties. Or your dog was so nice to my kid. But that dog that you wake up with and you feed and you organize their pills and the spoonfuls of peanut butter and you bend over on the street and in front of a bus full of people looking at you you pick something out of their butt when they're pooping because it's stuck you know like that's that's just you and them you know and there's kind of nowhere to go with it it's just in your house and it's in your heart and um it's been so hard to share and it's made me realize that I can't, like, hold my grief or my loss to other people's. Everyone's been through shit, you know? People talk about if you could bring your problems and your troubles and your grief into a pile and pile them up and see everyone else's, you would gladly take yours back. Don't compare what you've been through to other people. What sucks for a person just sucks for a person. Maybe you saw your friend die. Maybe you have a traumatic disease you're dealing with. Maybe your dog died. Maybe you have a hangnail. I mean, whatever it is, you're just fucking going through it, you know? The thing about my dog that I miss so much, it's not that I miss what he did for me. It's that there's a part of me that developed into a person that did stuff for him, and I don't know where to put that now. <laughs> you know, they're just day-to-day -day things. They're like feeding and cleaning, and I, I don't know where that goes. And I think it's because you form that kind of bond. The thing that's great about dogs is that they're just easy to be with. They can feel like a shadow. They make this huge impression on you, a pet, a dog, a cat, a bird, on such a short amount of time. 
they have so little here and you feel so connected to them and thinking of places you've been with dogs and the way they've infused themselves into your life you know it was hard right when I left to go on my like world tour of grief escape because everything was like the place he used to lay and the place where he was really sick that time and the place he had the seizure and I was walking right before I left and I even passed the parking spot where I remember Jack and I were in the car when we decided I was like oh that's where we decided to let him go and a few days later when I had to go pick up his collar when they weren't looking at the doctor I snuck back into the room with the horrible forced wallpaper <laughs> kind of like in a weird way I was like, what if he's in there it's it's, cr- it's crazy and you know it's crazy you do it but like I looked at the couch and I was like oh, that's the couch where he died and I want to get past this part so that I can start looking at like oh that's the place where he loved napping and like that's the cafe he loved walking by because they make dog treats and that's the place when I go home to my family's like that's where he would sit in the middle of the wrapping paper you know and I want to get back to those memories I think it's just like I don't know it's like when you build like a campfire if you ever like did a bonfire and you realize there's too much shit on the bonfire you can't take anything off there is no pausing it or fast forwarding through it. You just have to fucking let it burn and step as far away back as you can. And then hopefully it'll be okay. Like I keep wanting to take stuff off and there's just no room for that. I just have to get to the part where everything's easy to look at again. Cause I'm not remembering right now as much of that happy dog as I want. A lot of people, especially if they have animals or a lot of the vets and doctors, they actually say there's no wrong choice. We could have just let him go and, had him for two less months at the start and not put him through so much and us through so much. So I think that's what they mean when they say there's no wrong choice. You just can't feel bad about it, but it's hard. It's really hard to not want to like rewind it and do it differently. Because at a certain point you realize the only right answer for the way you feel is getting your dog back. One thing people keep forwarding to me is the fucking rainbow bridge. You know, the rainbow bridge. You've never heard of the rainbow bridge? The place where all your animals are waiting to meet you when you die? Okay, it's a thing, there are memes, there's a lot of lovely, well-intentioned Christian women that send me things about the Rainbow Bridge, and man, I want it to be true, (laughs) but like, I don't even know if people have souls, you know what I'm saying? I don't think necessarily maybe that God is real, and I'm still that kid in church when I was little, I'm like, you can cry and hold the snake and speak in tongues, and that's awesome for you, but I don't know how you intellectualize that, but what's weird for me is that If I had to get to a place where I couldn't intellectually justify what I knew was true in my heart, it would probably be the room where we said goodbye to him in that moment because I was trying to just a dog, it's just a dog myself out of that feeling because he's just a dog. He's like this 12-pound thing that like shits places and can't talk and has never got a job, never supported the household, you know? But I have this feeling for him that transcends whatever it is you know and I don't know if I believe in God but like I felt something in the room that day and I felt something in our kitchen that day that Jack and I came home and there was all the food and his family had they were like there with us and I can't make sense of those feelings but I'm happy about it and I'm trying to step back from all of that like intellectualizing I'm open to people sending me little things about dog as God spelled backwards it makes me roll my eyes as far up into my head as I can I remember seeing it before this happened thinking get a life but I carry a fucking rock now do you know what I mean like I take a rock that I talk to like my dog to hotel rooms and I make sure it's comfortable on the corner of a bed I'm fucking insane Every pet owner I've talked to talks about that feeling that 
Sometimes you just have to stop. I mean, I think that day where Jack gestured to the ground, look at him when I came back in, and I looked at him, and he was, I mean, he was half shaven, and and his tongue was bleeding. He wasn't there. He was probably blind, and I'd like to think that without him. I could have kept going, but what I what I really do is I fear without him that I would have kept going. Like that if Jack wasn't there. And when I think about putting Charlie through more of that, I feel so bad that I would have maybe done that because I'll always want him back. I can't start to take stuff out of his. It's still in the bags. I cannot look too long at pictures of him. And there's music that I can't hear. I can't listen to Etta James. It'll come up on a shuffle and it's like, abort! You know, I have to get to the iPod real fast. But right before I left, in our big living room where he used to lay in the sun on this oriental carpet, I listened to Grace Jones. I was playing it, this was right before I left, and it was that song, Bullshit. And in the song, she means it as like, a, you know, it's like a lover, someone that's pissed her off. It's very Grace Jones, you know. Feels this bullshit, you know, in her crazy. But when I listened to it that day, it made me think of like all the things I'd been letting like, build up in me in the last year sort of ending with losing Charlie and it made me feel like so empowered and it made me think about dancing to that song with him and for just a split second it was like I wasn't seeing him like with all the patches on his skin or like with the syringes going in or having a seizure it was just Grace Jones singing that bullshit song and just dancing with him and being happy you know and that makes me feel like that's like a a trailer for what's coming like it'll be better soon I'm gonna not beat myself up and I keep reminding myself that he was really special everyone's lost little dog even though you can't intellectualize it they're all really special they're cats and they're birds and they're fish I will never replace Charlie but I love him and um he really did make me feel like the boy from the story
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is George Michael behind me now, a favorite artist of David Crabb, who we just heard there. You can find David at davidcrabb.net. That story was edited by one of our story editors, John LaSala. And now I'm going to read for you the places that Risk is coming next. In most of these out-of-town cases, we are looking for pitches. So please pitch us for these shows. On June 28th, we are in New York City at Caveat. On June 28th, we're at Caveat in New York. On July 17th, we're back at Caveat. That is the night of the release of the Risk book. So that night on July 17th, that's a very special show. Those will all be people who are in the book. People like AJ Jacobs, Michelle Carlo, uh, Melina Williams-Hawes. We haven't confirmed everyone yet, but anyway, uh, July 17th at Caveat is the book release date. And then, let's see, on July 19th, we are doing a book signing and book reading at the Harvard Bookstore in Boston, in Cambridge. July 19th at Harvard Bookstore in Cambridge. Uh, July 20th, we are doing a show in Boston, technically Somerville, Arts at the Armory. That's July 20th. July 26th, we are doing a book signing at Book Passage in San Francisco. And then on July 27th, we're doing a show in San Francisco at Swedish American Hall. On July 28th, that's our next Los Angeles show at the Bootleg Theater. And that, too, will be a book release show. All people from, you know, telling stories who are featured in the book on July 28th at the Bootleg Theater. On August 1st, we're in Queens at the Astoria Bookshop, doing a book signing and book reading. August 1st at the Astoria Bookshop in Queens, New York. On August 3rd, we are in Detroit, Ferndale, technically, at the Magic Bag, doing a regular wrist show. Pitch us for that one, guys. On August 9th, we're at LaGrange in Illinois. That's at Anderson's Bookshop. On August 9th, that is a book signing, book reading at Anderson's Bookshop in LaGrange, Illinois on August 9th. On August 10th, we're in Chicago at Lincoln Hall doing a show, and we're taking pitches for that one, so pitch us August 10th in Chicago. August 11th, Minneapolis at Brave New Workshop, taking pitches for that show. On August 16th, we're in Washington, D.C. at Kramer Books and Afterwards Cafe, doing a book signing and book reading August 16th in D.C. August 17th, we're doing a show in Baltimore at Creative Alliance. We're taking pitches for that August 17th in Baltimore. August 18th, we're in Washington, D.C. doing a show at the Black Cat. Pitch us for that August 18th in D.C. September 6th, Portland, Oregon at Revolution Hall. Pitches for that. September 7th, we're in Seattle at the Vera Project. Pitches for that. September 8th, Vancouver at the Biltmore Cabaret. Pitches for that one, too. On September 20th, we're at the NYU Bookstore in New York. That's going to be a book signing and book reading. 
So, um, pitch us for the various shows and come out to see us for the various book readings and signings and come out to see us for the, for the shows too and go to thestorystudio.org to learn more about the storytelling training we do, including one of our teachers, David Crabb, who you heard on today's episode. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. There's Gabby Martinez and Jelly Fats, who sounds like one of the pioneers of jazz. There's Courtney Golbus and Travis Mayfield. There's Tara Owen and Jimmy Straightline Riley. There's Nancy Foster and Seth Cohn. There's Carter Armstrong. There's Elise Cloyd, Elise Cloyd. There's Jenny Neiman and Tom Hines. There's Katie Mellis, Katie Mellis and Liam Muldoon. Liam Muldoon. There's Manolo Matos and Catherine Smith. And I am Farker. And Lucy Moses. And Annie Dolan. Rachel Roberts Dan Alexandra Anna Anna Gustavus Papalos There's Ben Joseph There's Ben Fasters There's Judita Fetar Aitita there's Scott Salas and Caitlin Verdisco and Emily Gonzalez.